World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today is election day in America, but tonight might not be election results night. We guide you through what to expect on the white-knuckle ride of red and blue maps to come. And on a lighter presidential note, because the world really needs one, we take a historical look at the films that presidents have watched in their own private White House cinema. First up, though. Yesterday, Poland's prime minister appealed for calm after huge protests continued to rock the country over a strict new abortion law. In a video message, Mateusz Morawiecki called for dialogue with protesters and opposition leaders. There have been demonstrations across the country every day since the ruling was handed down last month. Last Friday, in Warsaw alone, 100,000 people took to the streets. The new ruling will ban abortions in cases of severe fetal defects. Terminations will now only be legal when the mother's life is in danger or in cases of rape or incest. But the scale of the backlash reveals a gap between public opinion and the ruling party's agenda. There's a surprising amount of young people at the protests. Annabelle Chapman writes about Poland for The Economist and is based in Warsaw. So um, mostly young women who have come out in the evening with these homemade placards. Things do tend to heat up in the night and there's also been some tension here with some counter demonstrations by more right-wing elements. But if you walk through Warsaw, then you can really see the traces of the protests because the symbol of the protests is a red lightning bolt and it has been graffitied sort of everywhere on the pavements, on the walls of buildings. Also, you can see obscenities written on on the streets where the protesters have gone past. So these are things that passers-by are just seeing in their daily lives. This anger expressed on the city. What exactly is the the letter of the new law and and when will it come into effect? The decision is actually a, a ruling by the Constitutional Tribunal which ruled on the 22nd of October that the current provisions allowing women to terminate a pregnancy in the case of severe and irreversible defects to the fetus are unconstitutional. So it's court ruling and it will enter force as soon as it is published. And what's the bigger picture here? How does this fit into abortion and the law in Poland as it stands now? 
So Poland already has some of the strictest restrictions on abortion in Europe. It's only allowed in three cases, when there's a danger to the woman's life, when there's a case of incest or rape, and thirdly, when there are severe and irreversible fetal defects. At the moment, there are roughly a thousand abortions carried out legally in Poland every year, and around 98% of those, almost all of them, are in cases of fetal defects. And this current ruling would remove this third option. And what's the bigger picture still as, as regards how this fits into to women's rights in Poland more generally? So since coming to power in 2015, the ruling Law and Justice Party has championed a particular traditionalist vision of family life. Szanowni Państwo, 22 października Trybunał Konstytucyjny wydał wyrok. For example, it has presented itself as the protector of the Polish family and presented gay people as a threat. This is the wider context in which it is sort of trying to regulate the circumstances in which women should or should not have children. The current rules on abortion in Poland are the result of a so-called compromise between the state and the church in 1993, shortly after the fall of communism. And if a woman wants to get an abortion for whatever reason that doesn't fit in those three exceptions, she can't get it legally in Poland. So she has to go underground or often go abroad to one of the neighboring countries, for example, Germany. And how much support is there for for this new ruling? Polls show that support for the ruling is actually limited, even within the support base of the ruling Law and Justice Party. In one from 2018, 70% of respondents were actually against banning abortion in cases of fetal defects. And even among law and justice voters, this was 40%. The current ruling is the result of longer-term pressure from the church and from social conservatives associated with the ruling party. In the past, there had been attempts to limit access to abortion in 2016. But then the, the ruling party backed down because there were protests on such an unexpected scale. So if there hasn't been much support among voters, even among the, the ruling party voters, how, how does this look politically for, for, the, for the party to be pushing it through? The Law and Justice Party has, been, has just gone through a crisis with internal divisions this autumn. And this conflict over abortion within Polish society is pointing to further divisions in the ruling camp. The hardline position is being pushed by Jarosław Kaczyński, who is the party's chairman, and he's defending the court ruling and saying it should be upheld. But there has been some criticism from other figures associated with the government. For example, one deputy prime minister said that women should not be forced to be heroic by the law. And so the the ruling party has its own problems. It seems to have stacked on another one by trying to to push this through. I mean, do do you think the protests will will eventually result in in the ruling being rolled back? There's no easy way out here for either side. It seems unlikely that the Law and Justice Party will offer a major concession, and it seems to be waiting for the protests to die down. Last Friday, the president, who is associated with the ruling party, came forward with a proposal to allow abortion in cases of lethal fetal defects. So in cases when the baby, the fetus, is certainly going to die as soon as it's born. But it's unclear whether the ruling party will support this bill and whether it will be enough to convince protesters. 
it seems that in this case, it really has gone too far. And a lot of people, especially women, are angered and alienated by this ruling. Annabelle, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. At long last, it's election day in America. No election year is uneventful, but oof, who could have predicted what this one would be like? The greatest economy in our history. Our military has been totally rebuilt. As 2020 began, the economy was strong, boosting Donald Trump's bid for re-election. We've created 7 million jobs since the election, including more than 1 million manufacturing and construction jobs. Nobody thought that was possible. The Democratic field was plentiful. Iowa, starting tomorrow, I believe you are going to make me the next president of the United States. I want to run for president because I want to get stuff done for hardworking people. Let us defeat Donald Trump. Let us transform this country. Thank you all very much. But as candidates crowded debate stages in Iowa and New Hampshire, the coronavirus was quietly spreading in parts of America. Soon, it would upend the campaign. Eventually, the Democratic field slimmed from nearly 30 candidates down to one, Joe Biden. So it's with great honor and humility, I accept this nomination for president of the United States of America. Rare in-person meetings between the two candidates reinforced the idea of a deeply divided America. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you answer that because question? the question is, the question is, the question is, who is on your list, Joe? Tonight, as the bitterly fought campaign comes to a close, millions of Americans and people around the world will tune in to watch as results are tallied. But it's unlikely that this unsettling election will actually be settled by tomorrow. I'm excited, obviously, like every political journalist. You know, elections are always thrilling. You get to watch history being made. John Fasman is our adrenaline-fueled Washington correspondent. I'm also, if I'm being honest, feeling a bit apprehensive about how the next few weeks and months play out. I'm in Philadelphia this week, and here, like in other cities, I'm seeing more and more boarded-up stores. And I've spent the last two days out talking to voters, people everywhere, Whichever candidate they support, they seem engaged, excited, and also really a little bit tense. And so how will the night play out? When will we start getting the results? And and what do you expect to see? Well, we should start to see states reporting some results at around 8 p.m. East Coast time. And those are going to be preliminary results. And I expect that two things will happen. Number one, the amount of mail-in ballots, as we'll talk about in a second, means that results may be slower than usual because those can take longer to count. And number two, I expect the networks are going to be extremely careful about what they're calling when. I expect they will err on the side of caution. So I expect to see something start to happen around 8 p.m. 
And you need to bear in mind that results that come in early, at least of in-person votes, tend to favor Republicans because Republican votes tend to be concentrated in more rural precincts where there are just fewer votes to count. So it may be that Donald Trump appears in a very good position early in the night. I would also say that anyone who expects to go to sleep tonight knowing who won the election is probably going to be disappointed. You mentioned mail-in ballots, the, the big topic for this election cycle. What role are they going to play? Due to COVID, an unprecedented number of ballots have been cast by mail. So that requires an enormous surge in elections infrastructure, and it'll just take a long time to count. Some states allow election volunteers to begin processing the ballots. That means opening the inner envelopes, checking signatures, making sure the ballots are valid, making sure the voters are eligible to vote before the polls close. And that's really important because that process takes a long time. Now, other states, including the crucial states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, don't allow election workers to even touch the ballots before today. So those are going to take a lot of time to be counted. And remember also that some states accept ballots that are postmarked by Election Day, even if they arrive late. So Pennsylvania will accept ballots up until November 6th. Uh, North Carolina, pending a court challenge, will accept them up until November 12th. Now, obviously, this will not be a huge number of ballots coming in late, But in close races, you know, a small number of ballots can matter. So if tomorrow comes and there's still no clear indication of who's won, how do you expect President Trump to react? The president has repeatedly called for a total tonight. He has tried to get people to believe that whatever the result is tonight is the result of the election and ballots that come in late are illegitimate and will flip the result. We should know the result of the election on November 3rd, the evening of November 3rd. That's the way it's been, and that's the way it should be. What's going on in this country? What's going on? We believe this is simply untrue. Elections have never been decided on election night. The calls that come in on election night are unofficial. They're made by the Associated Press. The election does not have to be certified until December 14th. And remember that Donald Trump himself was not declared the winner until the day after the election at 2.29 a.m., If you remember back in 2000, that election was unsettled until December 13th. And so Americans should expect the results to take a long time, and they should resist the calls for impatience wherever they come from. And are there any key results to watch out for, things that would be really game-changing? We may see a few shifts. I mentioned earlier that in-person counting tends to favor Republicans early and Democrats late. There are a few instances in which that pattern may reverse Ohio and North Carolina, which are both states in which the candidates have been running really neck and neck for a long time, they're going to report mailed and early ballots before in-person votes. So Biden may appear to be in a much better position there than he ultimately ends up at. The state to really watch for tonight is Florida. They may well report their full results tonight. They've been tabulating mailed and early ballots for a long time. If Joe Biden wins Florida, then Donald Trump's path to the presidency is really implausibly narrow. It's not entirely all over, but he would have to run an inside straight like no president has ever run before. It's really very unlikely. If Biden wins Florida and Texas, if Texas happens to report all of its results tonight, then it really is over. And of course, this is a a general election, too, and there are plenty of Senate seats up. Do you think we'll get a sense tonight of which way the Senate's going to go? Yeah, we may have an idea of which party controls the Senate after tonight. So there are four states, Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, and Maine, that should report full results tonight. If Democrats take those four, then they will probably take the Senate. If not, and Alabama is really iffy, Doug Jones, who you'll remember won in 2017 against Roy Moore, 
He is a very endangered Democrat, probably the most endangered in the country. If he doesn't win, then we'll need to wait for results from Georgia, where there are two Senate seats being contested, along with Iowa and North Carolina. But if Democrats have a very good night, you'll know it early. If they don't, then things will take a while. Okay, uncertainty at every turn. Is there anything you can definitely predict is going to happen? Yes, whatever happens tonight, there's going to be a lot of legal wrangling to follow. Both campaigns have armies of lawyers spread out across the country. And while the details of each of these legal fights will change from state to state, the broad contours are really clear. One political party wants all legally cast ballots to be counted. The other does not. And this, to my mind, is less a fight between Democrats and Republicans, although it is that in this case, than it is between small-D Democrats, people who believe in democracy, and people who find democracy inconvenient when it fails to deliver victory to them. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Always great to talk to you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. Get a great deal by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Whoever gets voted into the White House later today, or this week, or soon anyway, there's a certain not very well-known presidential perk that awaits. Since 1942, the White House has had its own cinema, and historians have doggedly documented the films that presidents have chosen to screen through the years. President Trump's not a particularly culturally engaged president, but I think we all know that he's very keen on the sequel to his own presidency. We don't yet know if he's going to get that green lit. Matthew Sweet writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. But if we have a look at all the films that past presidents have put on, we might see, if not the window to their souls, then some kind of scene presented of what's going on inside their heads, their ideas and their ideology. Cinema in the White House predates the installation of a cinema in the White House. There was one projected on the lawn early on, but the first one projected inside the building happens in February 1915, and that's Woodrow Wilson sitting down to D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, landmark in the history of cinema. But also a film distinguished by the fact that the climax has the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes rescuing the white heroine from the white actor in blackface. Wilson is reported to have said that this film was like writing history with lightning. That's something that has been appended to the film for all of its critical history. Probably didn't say it, but Griffith was very good at using anything that people did or didn't say about his films as publicity for them. JFK was one of the presidents who, I suppose, had more of a natural connection with Hollywood. And he's the person really responsible for cinema as a perk of the presidency, because he asked for a screening of Spartacus in the White House. Spartacus, a motion picture unequaled in the entire history of filmmaking. The film company refused to provide Kennedy with a print, and so he went out and saw it in an ordinary cinema in Washington. Because this was used in the publicity campaign, people are very keen to be associated with this picture. It has a strong kind of civil rights vibe to it. That's the point from which Hollywood decides, right, this could be handy. Let's send the president anything he wants. 
President Jimmy Carter was really, I think, the most cinematically engaged of presidents. Reagan, of course, this was his previous profession, but there were more films screened in the White House under Jimmy Carter than any other president. You've got somebody who wants to know about contemporary cinema. He's not just screening old classics. He actually wants to know about what's going on in contemporary popular culture. So he's the first president to screen an X-rated film in the White House. And that's John Schlesinger's Midnight Cowboy. And I think it says uh, something about Carter's intellectualism, his sophistication, that he can engage with a work of art like that. Although Reagan is the president who has, in a way, cinema in his blood, and we know lots of juicy little details, Reagan always ate two bowls of popcorn at every screening, but Gandhi was a three-bowl movie because it was so long. Jimmy Carter is the one who, I think, has the most sophisticated tastes. During the Obama years, the White House cinema develops that identity it has as a sort of professional space, really, a space for PR activities. It's a place of entertainment for them. It's where the Obama daughters watch High School Musical 3 on uh, inauguration night in 2009. And then the Obama daughters had a scavenger hunt. The prize for the scavenger hunt, the thing they found at the end, was the Jonas Brothers, that pop band of the period, in the East Room. Now, the East Room was where, all those years ago in 1915, Woodrow Wilson had screened Birth of a Nation. So I think there is a kind of intense symbolism about that. On that night, when the first African-American president is being inaugurated, that party is going on in a room where really a film of notorious racism was projected. We don't know a great deal about Donald Trump's cinematic activities. We do know that Finding Dory, the Pixar animation about the nice little fish, was uh, projected there. Where are they? Dory! There was a certain irony about that that was very much observed by the actual makers of the film, that this film about a lost child separated from its parents was projected in the White House on the same weekend that Donald Trump signed his so-called Muslim ban. That clanged a little hard. Matthew, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.